Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Hello, fans of takeaways. Happy New Year. Here is another NAOP Southern Nevada program recap. NAOP is the Association for the Commercial Real Estate Development Industry. The January program was titled Developers Roundtable, a 2023 kickoff. This is the third year in a row that NAOP Southern Nevada kicked off the year with this kind of content. And it seems appropriate because it is a developers association after all. So having four developers on the big stage talking about how the year's ended and what they're expecting, that's just what NAOP does. This year's panelists include Rod Martin with Majestic Realty Company. They're all over the country. Uh, here in the Southwest, they focus on big industrial developments, primarily in the Southwest part of the Valley. We had Tim Costello with Brass Cap. They also build industrial here in Las Vegas. I would say they're more on the entrepreneurial side. Jeff Lapore was on the stage again. Jeff focuses primarily on industrial. There's like a theme here. Everyone's industrial, industrial, industrial. So hot right now. Uh, Jeff also, though, however, has a Class A office building called The Narrative uh, along the 215, and he builds hospitality projects as well. Uh, we had Jonathan Four. Jonathan focuses on building multifamily, so big apartment communities. And we had a fantastic moderator this year. Let me just tell you, this guy absolutely killed it. I believe it was his NAOP moderating debut, and I have a feeling he's coming back. I'm talking about Sean Zare, Senior Vice President with CBRE. The program sponsor that morning was Martin Harris Construction. It was an excellent program. I love this one every year. I look forward to it because it really sets the tone. It's a recap of here's what happened last year. Here's what we're all expecting for the year to come. So I'm going to go away. You're going to hear applause, and then you will hear all the panelists and the moderator, Sean Zayer, come on. You'll hear the full program from the NAOP Southern Nevada Developers Roundtable. Enjoy. I assume the much more qualified, experienced, first choice moderator uh, was not able to make it today. So I was fortunate enough to get the call up, which I'm extremely excited to, uh, to have this uh, opportunity. So, so with that, um, obviously, we talked about the DLI program. So one thing I do want to mention, and I think it's important for the young members or non-members in this room or, or watching today, uh, I, I remember being in your seat eight years ago and looking at the panelists uh, and, and seeing the leaders in our in our market up here, and I would not have known within eight years that I'd actually be up here um, being the moderator for uh, the group we're about to bring up. So uh, my involvement with DLI was obviously extremely important in my growth as a professional. And so I think it's extremely important to, to get involved, trust the process of NAOP. Um, 
because uh, I remember when I gave my first speech for the committee five years ago, and I was extremely nervous, shaking. And now I'm sitting up here on the actual stage being a moderator. So the process work, NAOP is a great organization, uh, so definitely get involved. Uh, with that, I have the pleasure to uh, introduce the panel uh, here today. And uh, you guys do know them. They're leaders in the market, some of the top developers. Um, but I think more importantly, they're leaders in the industry. Uh, we're talking about development today, and it's the growth of Southern Nevada. And part of that is this group in particular is at the forefront of uh, making sure that we continue to grow the commercial world of Las Vegas, which obviously is extremely important to all of us. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, call up the panelists. Um, so Tim Costello. Uh, Tim Costello is a lifelong Nevadan with a diverse range of industry ex expertise, including nearly two decades of experience in development, land entitlements, brokerage, and civil construction. Tim co-founded Brasscap Development, building a portfolio of 2 million square feet of industrial asset in multiple states. Everyone, please welcome Tim. All right, next we have Jonathan Four. Jonathan Four is a managing partner of Four Property Company. Four is a national developer, contractor, and property manager of multifamily assets. Four is based in Las Vegas and develops and owns assets in 10 states. Four currently has four deals under development in Southern Nevada. Please give a round of applause for Jonathan. <laughs> Jeff Lepore. Uh, Jeff Lepore is the founder and president of Lepore Partners, a commercial real estate and hospitality development firm active in the Western US. Over the past 20 years, he has led development ventures as a principal on over 6 million square feet of office, industrial, and hospitality space. Everyone, please welcome Jeff. And last but not least, Rod Martin. Uh, Rod Martin joined Real, uh, Majestic Realty Co. in 1992, opened the Las Vegas office in 1994, and currently serves as Senior Vice President and Director of Development. As a senior development partner, he's responsible for the development, leasing, and asset management of Majestic Holdings in Southern Nevada, totaling over 7 million square feet of industrial and office product. Everyone, please welcome Rod. All right, so um, obviously today's panel is a, a development uh, roundtable, so I would like to kind of quickly pass it over to this group just to kind of explain more so what they do, what they're working on, and kind of their product type that they're currently working on within the market. Uh, so I'll first start with Tim. Morning. Uh, can you guys hear me okay? There we go. Morning, Tim Costello, um, Brass Cap Development. Um, I uh, develop primarily industrial product developed in, in uh, multiple states, um, both Boise, Idaho, and Southern Nevada. Primary focus uh, being Southern Nevada. Um, we, uh, we business model was to build and sell. Um, developed a, uh, and actually in 2021, in June of 2021, um, we uh, packaged up our portfolio and sold it, sold the entire portfolio to an institutional investor. Um, as a result of that, I spent all of uh, 2022 completing that transaction, um, bringing about 10 buildings to market, um, turning those keys over to, uh, to the new buyer or the new owner. Um, in terms of 23, um, sitting with a little bit of dry powder, watching where the market goes, um, cautiously, uh, cautiously optimistic, 
Um, I do have some land holdings in Southern Nevada. Um, do have a, a, a building that I, I will bring online this year. I have a, a property at uh, Lamb and Cartier that I've designed 75,000 square feet on. Um, we'll bring that, we'll break ground uh, roughly in the next two to three weeks and anticipate bringing that to market um, fourth quarter of this year. Okay, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan Four with Four Property Company. Uh, we're a national developer, contractor, and property manager developing in Washington, Oregon, Northern and Southern California, uh, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, uh, Florida, currently. Um, I'm based here in, in Southern Nevada. The company's based here in Southern Nevada. We have uh, four deals currently under construction. Um, we've done uh, most recently primarily infill development here in Southern Nevada. Uh, recently did a, a deal on Spring Mountain. Uh, just completed a deal on Twain and the I-15 and broke ground recently um, on a deal uh, right behind the Martin and Panorama Towers on Harmon and uh, the 15. So fo focused most recently on infill development, um, exclusively multifamily. We do some ground floor retail um, in those developments, but uh, primarily uh, exclusively multifamily. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Jeff Lepore, um, uh, Lepore Partners. We're active in uh, Las Vegas, um, Phoenix, and Denver. We do three product types, primarily industrial, um, some office and some select serve uh, hospitality. And we've been in Phoenix 25 years. I've been in Las Vegas 30 years, been in Denver for maybe seven or eight years. Hi, I'm Rod Martin with Majestic Realty. First, John, thank you very much, and the rest of the panel enjoy being up here with you all. Um, Majestic is a privately owned company, now 75 years old, headquartered in Southern California, owned by Ed Roski, founded by his father, Ed Sr. Um, nationally, we've got about 90 million square feet of commercial product. It's predominantly industrial, and that industrial is really centered in Southern California marketplace where we've got about 50 million square feet. Here in Las Vegas, uh, as mentioned in the bio, I came up here in 94 to open the office. We've developed about six and a half million square foot of industrial, uh, really concentrating in the Southwest submarket. Uh, the projects that we're just finishing up on now, we've got a joint venture with the Thomas & Mack Company, who's a wonderful partner, and we're finishing up on three buildings there. Um, fortunately, we're pre-leased on those three buildings, and now our efforts are focused on uh, a number of projects that we have with the new joint venture partner, EGM Development Group. Very much looking forward to getting on with the development out there, and that's at <coughs> Buffalo in the 215. Perfect. Thank you, guys. So we have a lot to talk about here. Um, obviously, the focal point is development, and I think development is really center, centered around market fundamentals, and that's what drives new development. So I, I would love to get all your guys' perspective in your different product types and kind of where, where the market is today, what are some of the trends you're seeing. And, and I do think there's a slight disconnect between the capital and debt markets to the actual fundamentals, certainly on the industrial side, that what we're seeing today. Uh, so if we could kind of briefly go over that, and, and Rob, start with you, what you're seeing on the industrial side. I know you specialize in um, you know, kind of the Southwest market. You guys sure. have a presence in California. Just understand the dynamics you're seeing. So you know, to me, in any economic system, uh, money kind of makes the world go round. And you know, not so important in life, but when it comes to commercial real estate, it certainly is. And you know, when we're talking about money, it's really the, 
availability of capital and the cost of capital. And ultimately, that's what is going to make you know, go and no-go decisions on new real estate projects. Um, it's interesting when you look up and down you know, the lineage of who's involved in commercial development. You, today, you get a lot of different opinions, you know, whether it's from the brokerage community, whether it's from the construction community and those in the capital markets. And you know, in many ways, we're probably at a little bit of an inflection point today um, as to who's going to make that decision to continue to go forward, who's going to believe, you know, have the belief in the, the market fundamentals and what we're seeing here on the ground, and you know, who maybe is going to question whether today is really the right time to move forward on a particular project. And I think we'll see more decisions based upon a project-by-project -project basis as opposed to what we've seen over the last two years where you really couldn't make a mistake going forward. And, and, and let me let me add to that or ask a follow-up question there. So obviously you have a presence in the in the southwest market. Um, you've been known to um, have some internal growth with with tenants going into your new projects. What's the tenant demand look within your portfolio? What's your current uh, you know occupancy within your portfolio, sure. and how does that dynamic look? So specific to our portfolio, and Sean, I think you could answer you know the. The larger question is to what you're seeing the, the tenant demand throughout the marketplace. But within our portfolio, you know, we've been at 100% leased for two years. Um, we backfill spaces on those rare occasions where tenants are, you know, moving out, um, and it's been difficult for tenants to find new spaces. So we really don't see those situations occur very often. We're going to have our first tenant moving out here in June, and we've, you know got a LOI signed and ready to, to backfill that space. So, you know, the market from the demand side is, is extremely strong. Quite frankly, that's probably what is pushing us over the edge more than anything else to continue moving forward on a very strong basis is knowing that, you know, we've got, you know, some degree of control or certainly more control than a, you know, a third party would be within our existing tenant portfolio. And we see very strong demand from that existing portfolio. Um, the new project that we're looking to, um, have up by the end of the year. Quite frankly, I would expect maybe 50% of that's going to be filled by existing tenants uh, just because they haven't had many alternatives as to where to go. And again, it does benefit you if you have you know, some degree of control over lease expirations and things along those lines. So you know, we're seeing very strong organic growth. Quite frankly, I wish we've had more product up over the last 12 months. I think we would have done a lot of leasing if we had more product up. But Again, you know, we've kind of just towed the line through the, the various economic times, not trying to get out too far in front of ourselves, and, but all the while just keep the machine running. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's important for the audience to know that may not be as familiar with the industrial market specifically. Is we currently sit at 1.3% vacancy, uh, so an extremely tight market, virtually zero available product today. Um, we obviously do have uh, a significant amount under construction, about 16 million. Of that, 45% of that's pre-leased today. Um, I guess the real question is that planned pipeline of 25 million, and, and you know, really, when does that deliver? Uh, is there is there delays in that for the reasons on the financing that we've talked about, which we'll get into a little bit later? Um, Jeff, I know you 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 dabble in, in various you know industrial office. And so I'd love to get your perspective, uh, certainly on the industrial side, but uh, uh, on the office side. I know you guys have a project going up uh, that's completed at Narrative and seeing what you're seeing specifically in the office market for Las Vegas and some of the trends. So I'll, I'll start with industrial. I think um, I built the first industrial building I was ever involved in, in in 1994. I was just looking back at some notes for this panel and really got started in like maybe the later 90s, like 98-ish or so. And I don't think anybody in this room or in this market has ever seen an industrial market as strong as it's been 
the last 24 months. W would you agree, Rod? I mean, you guys have a national footprint, 70 years of experience. I mean, it, it's just, it was beyond um, red hot. And I think so many new players that had never been industrial before, all threw their hat in the ring. Everybody did it all at once, met with good demand. And I think, yeah, we're seeing a little bit of a timeout in the capital markets, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, at sub 2% vacant, you know, that's, that's a market where virtually every single building is full, um, except maybe, you know, the most obsolete of the obsoletes or something that's brand new and just hasn't had a chance to fill yet. So even if half of that space that's in the pipeline doesn't absorb, it doesn't necessarily move the needle that high on vacancy. So um, I think from a demand standpoint, we still see demand. We still see um, uh, it's a different type of demand than it historically was. It's much larger buildings, um, much larger tenants today than, than there ever were. You know, way back in the day, a 20 or 30,000 square foot deal was a big deal here. Um, now it's a 500 or an eight or even a million. So um, I, I do think there's definitely a disconnect between where capital markets are. But I, I think that they're, from what I can tell and the groups that we've both sold to and partnered with, um, they're trying to find their way a little bit on what they think this next set of um, development yields looks like. Uh, but I'm pretty sure if demand stays strong, there's going to be a way found to meet it. Uh, on the office side, um, you know, COVID probably really gave office a gut punch. And I would say that's still true. I was just looking at an article that says 50% of the office space in the United States, people are back to work. So that's foreign to us here in these markets because you know, I would say the majority of everybody I know and see in both Phoenix and um, Las Vegas, 100% of the people are back. Um, and not only are they back, they're leasing super premium office space at rates that have never been paid before. Um, when the rest of sort of the CBDs and the rest of these other maybe more urban markets, including downtown LA, are scrambling to find uses for buildings that people feel may never be in office again. So it's really a tale of two markets. Um, I think Las Vegas in particular has had a great deal of pent up demand. Uh, we didn't have new office construction outside of maybe one building in Summerlin for about a 12 year period, give or take. And then about 600,000 feet came on all just about the same time. And almost all of it's absorbed. So. Um, it's really kind of an interesting um, differentiator between markets on office. Yeah, it seems like on the office side, it's kind of flight to, flight to suburbia, flight to quality. And so those, that 215 Beltway, which is kind of seen as the, the, the premium spot for the office market, seems to have that tenant demand. We're seeing it in Phoenix, too. I mean, we, we delivered a building in 2019 in a super premium location, Camelback Road. And we were, our rents were at $42, give or take. And that was considered like unattainable, right? In the last nine months, a new building opened just like ours, two blocks down. They're at $54 rents, pre-leased 100%. It's a small building, 100,000 feet. Pre-leased 100% before they finished. So I mean, you know, there's lots of like misinformation I think about office and, and it does have an identity crisis um, at the moment. 
but for the most part, tenants will pay what they need to pay in order to be where they want to be. And do you think part of that is in order to get the employees back, they have to have the, the premium location, the uh, amenities associated with that? And I'd like to get your take on that, because in our industry, in order to be a, you know, successful and, um, and grow, we need to be collaborating. And so for our industry, I feel like we want to be in the office because we need to be with our partners. We got to collaborate, and that's what makes us successful. Obviously, some big name companies have already mandated that groups come back, employees come back, even if it's just on a you know, four-day work schedule. Are you seeing that starting to shift, and, and will that impact the office market? Yeah, I think so. I, I think what's funny is that the same companies that say you have to come back are the ones that said we're never coming back. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And it's like these extreme reactions to things are, you know, sort of plague this industry in general, and they always even out kind of um, eventually. But I think with the labor market where it is and just how difficult it is to fill positions with qualified people with the right culture for your company, um, companies have realized the physical space is super important. I mean, you guys just moved to a new space. Collier's just moved into our building. I hear from both companies all the time how surprised they are about the difference of how they all feel in these newer buildings. I, I can attest to that. Yeah, so. <laughs> for sure. And I think now maybe rent was maybe top one or two things people were worried about. I think the face value of the rent is one thing. Oh, geez, I don't think I can pay that. But the payoff and the benefit and the ability to recruit and retain has, has, I think, far surpassed rent. Great. And then, Jonathan, what are you seeing on the apartment multifamily side? Yeah, I'm going to touch on the, the back to work just to yeah. start. Um, it's interesting. Uh, we're in the Bay Area uh, with, with two deals. And in 2021 and 22, that was our worst market because no one was there working. And you know, Las Vegas and Phoenix, where we saw 20% rent growth. Um, over the last six months, the Bay Area is our best performing market. It is just, you know, th those tech companies have been late to, to require their people to come back to work. But with people coming back to work and coming into the office, we're definitely seeing that in the Bay Area. And that's, you know, we're, we're getting eight to nine leases a week up there in the Bay Area now. So um, that whole back to work thing, I, I think, the, I think it, to your point, it is regional. I think you go to New York or Washington, D.C., those CBDs are ghost towns. But out here on the West Coast, I think it's... Uh, For sure. Been a lot different. But, and so we, we see that. We sort of draft off that a little bit yeah. with multifamily. And, um, you know, where people were working from home here in southern Nevada and had a job in New York, now they have to go back. And, and so we're seeing a little bit rise in, in vacancy as a result of that. But, um, you know, I think you know, originally the question was about financing. I think for, for multifamily deals going forward, it's all about yields. And, um, you know, with interest rates up, I think, you know, our investors are looking for higher yields, and um, you know there's a couple levers that we can pull to get there. It's you know raise raise the rents, or, or costs have to come down. And I think we've been able to do deals in 2022 uh, with these rising construction costs because our rents were going up. Uh, but that that rent growth on the multifamily side has started to slow, um, and with with vacancy going up. And so, you know, we're starting to have to push back. Deals are not going forward now because. Land costs, construction costs are so high, and you know there is a little bit of disconnect, like the like the other panelists have said right now. Um, the you know we need to get the capital to open up, and I think the Fed is accomplishing what they want. You know by raising the interest rates, um, you know, there's deals that aren't going forward, and you know we'll see a slowdown uh, here in terms of 
new deals that we will be doing in, in Las Vegas in 2023 as a result. And, and then, Tim, I, I know you're on the industrial side, and uh, you guys, the product you deliver is kind of below that, that big box distribution. I, I think it fits a need that our market uh, lacks, and it's that mid-bay light industrial. And obviously, you guys have had some tremendous success uh, with the projects that you've done. So in your terms, what, what does the market dynamics look for you guys, and what are you seeing, and um, how is that? Uh, based off that, what does your you know, 2023 look like in terms of? Sure. Directed. And I think it's 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 really back to fundamentals right now. It's kind of like Rod said. It's you know you take each project you know one by one and, and take a look at it. Um, guys were you know aggregating multiple deals and you know we we definitely um, did that um, you know to bring in some of the institutional capital. Some of the deals I'm looking at now are are, are much smaller where it's internal capital that we're funding the deal with, um, and then you know taking it out either you know through a bank or or through a debt fund um, to finance the the construction side of it. Um, I think that the fundamentals are still strong there. I mean you, you know you, you mentioned I've always used the number sub two percent, but you use one you know one three. Um, um, so I, I think that the demand is still there for the product um, in terms of the you know the for sale product that, that we've been building over the years. Um, I think that there's definitely a disconnect with you know we, we sold a lot of our product to you know institutional buyers. Um, I think there are still some exchange buyers out there for for the smaller product. I know I've got a you know about fifty thousand square footer that I'm just completing right now in the southwest, um, and and I think that there's there's still activity for that. I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect on on you know the cap rates. Um, it, the biggest concern that I have is is you know we're not seeing construction costs come down. I mean I've even heard. Um, some escalations. I know concrete. I've, I've, I've heard a bump that we're going to be seeing there um, in the next uh, in, in the next couple of months. Um, and you know, we started looking that at, even in 2022. You know, asking the question of the contractors. You know, are the prices coming down? And, and we we definitely haven't seen that. Um, I, I priced a 100,000 square foot deal that I looked at. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, where, where prices were at, I mean, the land would have would have uh, had to have been half half price of, of you know what the seller was looking for um, for the for the return to work on that deal. Um, so I, I think it's it's it, that that is my biggest concern is is just the disconnect of, of what we can build for versus what what we can you know what we can exit the deal for. Um, but. Uh, in terms of the market fundamentals, I think that they're still there and, and demand is still strong. And, and if you've got a deal that works and, and you're buying it at the right price, um, you know, I think you'll be okay in 23. Yeah, and so that, that's a good segue. But obviously, we talk about an, an industrial specific. Obviously, we talked about office, the success, some of these uh, um, prime locations with amenities have had. But the fundamentals remain strong. Um, so it's it, it really just becomes a mathematical game, uh, mathematical equation on, on development. It's what yields can you do, and then this higher rate interest rate environment, obviously that significantly un impacts the underwriting. So regardless if the, the fundamentals are strong, we're continuing to see tenant demand, we're seeing increased rent appreciation. It all comes down to you know what what your underwriting can, what you can achieve, and all, part of that is really the kind of price discovery between what a seller is willing to sell today and what a buyer is willing to buy. 
Um, and when we look at the actual construction development side of it, I, I see three main issues that I want to talk to the panel about is, is one, as you alluded to, construction costs. Obviously, COVID-19 had a huge impact on the construction costs through its supply chain. Um, you had raise in uh, material costs, material procurement. Um, the lead times in order to get the product was significantly delayed. So what are you guys seeing? And, and you alluded to it a little bit, but what are you guys seeing today? Has that softened at all? Is there any end in sight, whether it's today, 12 months, 18 months from now, um, what are you guys seeing? And, and like I said, this can be a conversation anyone can open up on. I, I would have expected costs to be down a little bit more than they are today. Um, but I do think, you know, so, so I was on a panel and, you know, do costs ever stop going, do ever costs ever go down or they just stop going up for a period of time? And that, and that may be the reality is, you know, we'll, we'll get, have some, uh, some flat, um, growth and costs, but I, I think, you know, there's going to be projects, at least on the, in the multifamily space, that are not going to go forward that these contractors, both generals and subcontractors, have on their books, um, and that they're going to need to sharpen their pencil, especially on the labor side, to keep their, their, um, their, their crews busy and, 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 and working. So I do think as some of these projects start dropping, uh, that we will see some, I'll call it price stability. I don't know if costs will ever go down, though. Yeah. Yeah, labor, labor cost is obviously a significant part of that equation. So if you do see some of these projects pull back, then obviously that opens up a labor force, theoretically. Mm -hmm. well, um, I, I think, I don't know if you can hear me there. I think on the, the, the residential side, I mean, those guys have, have dropped off quite a bit. You know, I mean, I sit on the planning commission and, and for Clark County and, and, you know, a lot of the big deals that we've seen drop not moving forward are, uh, are, are the residential deals, you know, some of the national builders. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you look on, on the industrial and the commercial side, when I talk to contractors, you know, the, the handful of guys that I talk to, they have extraordinary backlog right now. Um, so it's really interesting to see the disconnect between those two sectors. Yeah. You know, Sean, when the Fed started raising rates and I think it became, you know, common knowledge that we were going to see short-term rates, you know, go you know, into the fours, into the fives, and, you know, maybe into the sixes, I expected that construction price was going to come down. And, you know, I think a, a lot of companies, you know, put things on pause through, you know, latter part of the third quarter and fourth quarter of last year just to kind of evaluate, you know, what the, you know, the circumstances are going to be, you know, and, you know, people are looking for excuses not to make decisions, whether it was the elections uh, that, you know, occurred in November, whether it was what the Fed was going to do. And I think a lot of those companies thought, well, maybe first quarter of, of 23, well, you know, it'll be time to make a decision. I actually thought that uh, we were going to see a leveling off of construction costs in October, November. And, you know, you saw a couple of trades, some pricing come down. As you know, in industrial, you know, the, the roof structure is something that, you know, escalated probably, you know, two and a half times what it had historically been. And we saw that moderate a little bit, which gave, you know, a little bit of hope. But, you know, just over the course of the last week or so, I don't think we're going to see the, the drop in construction prices. Um, and, you know, certainly when you look at what's occurring in other markets, and for us, much of what happens in Southern California does impact us out here. And we're not seeing much of a slowdown in, in Southern California, probably for slightly different reasons. Uh, if you've got a project that you've already been committed to, you've got entitled, let alone permitted, you're probably going to move forward for fears that the regulations are going to be that much more stringent if you put things on hold. So we haven't seen that much of a, a slowdown in, in the Southern California marketplaces other than 
you know, maybe one or two Amazon deals that actually got, got canceled and you know, a handful of others, but deals aren't getting canceled. And so you know, the, I think the people that kind of went on pause, you're seeing more of them you know, looking to continue forward. Some of them, again, are going to stop, which is why, we're, in my opinion, we're gonna see a slowdown this year. But from a construction standpoint, I'm not anticipating, unfortunately, construction costs to go down. And what would you say, obviously, construction costs don't not going down. What about lead time? So I know on some of our projects over the last 12 months, you mentioned roof structure. They've actually had to plan their entire project around when they would get roof structure in, which would obviously delay the development. So are you seeing that softening, lead times getting better? So in cases, yeah. You know, to me, it, it's kind of, and contractors and subs, you know, they're going to make as much money as they can, you know, with their contracts. You know, I've pre-ordered things with the anticipation they're going to be delivered when they're, I'm told they're going to be delivered. Come to find out they're not there, you know, which in my means, in my mind, just means that they sold it to somebody else for a higher price, <laughs> and you know, now they're going to struggle to, to get mine. So I think that you know most developers are having to account for that by way of pre-ordering. Uh, you know we're storing a lot of electrical gear on, on our next project and a lot of steel and, and the rest of that. And you do the best you can. That's not to say that you know you're still not going to have surprises. Uh, you know whether it's glass or you know all of a sudden you're anticipating something to be delivered and it you know is in some way damaged, it's tough to get replacements. And next thing you know, you're scrambling to you know, come up with what that replacement may be of, of something that is comparable. So yeah, I think that you know, we've learned through the difficult times that we're gonna pre-order, you know, particularly those things that are, are the longer lead time. And if, if not, then you're scrambling. And it's a fire drill every time. You're generally able to figure it out, but it's not easy. Yeah, not easy on the brokers who sign leases either. So I, I totally get it, and delays obviously outside of control. And um, it's, 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 from what I understand, it has, you know, some lead times have softened a little bit, which is good to hear, but still the construction costs, as you guys alluded to, hasn't, hasn't quite changed. That's kind of become a pretty fixed variable at this point. But I think, too, that, like, the delays that were occurring a year ago, like, it, like a year ago we were um, going to break ground on a project in Mesa maybe it was a year and a half ago. And that's right at the time when roof joists, all this sort of shortage started to be talked about. And then it was, oh man, it'll take you a year to get that. Then it was like, oh man, it might be 18 months, then it's 12 months, then it's four. You know what I mean, it's back and forth. But I think in some way, those shortages elongated the cycle because all the product wasn't able to come when it was planned to come. And the demand has been strong, so I think that the delays and the inability to deliver on the timeframes we used to deliver on has, has elongated this cycle. In Phoenix, they call it a super cycle, but yeah. it's like, it's, I think it's definitely stretched it. Yeah, I, I would a thousand percent agree to that. It, it, it spreads out the development, so we've been continuing to be in a tight market, which may not be great for tenants, um, but certainly for rent appreciation, yeah. the fundamentals remain strong, so in agreement there. Um, so the next issue I see, uh, Vegas has always been a market that has um, kind of been the benefactor and uh, had the competitive advantage of speed of delivery on product. And so the question I have is this, the entitlement process that we're seeing today, is that still an advantage? Do we still have the speed to market? And what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's a disaster. Uh, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be honest. Um, I think that, you know, there was a big push for about housing affordability here in Southern Nevada last year. And we sat down 
um, with the powers that be and is that you know we can get more product to the market, but it's just, you know it, it's just taking too long to get the entitlement approvals, and um, you know we've lost that advantage where we could uh, I could tie up a piece of land and be under construction in nine months now that's eighteen months, um, you know Southern California is still worse and so and so is Northern California, but that used to be a real advantage and and I, I think you know if, we, if we're going to look at housing affordability. We need to make we need to streamline the process, and we make need to make it easier to get the entitlements and get these projects out of the ground. I, I think it's case by case too. What, what's the easiest market here in Texas? Probably yes. Yeah, um, that, that's why Texas gets all the the big uh, development. Um, I think it depends on where you're at. Um, Las Vegas definitely you know has drainage, you know has a lot of civil, has a lot of things that has to make its way through in terms of zoning itself. Um, hasn't necessarily been, um, you know, too difficult of an issue, at least for, for industrial, you know, and or office. But certainly getting a, a building permit is, is more difficult than it's, than it's ever been. Um, but you can compare that to some pockets of um, Denver where we are. We're three years in on an entitlement, and we have about six months left to go on a site that's in the flight path of an airport. So it's not like... Um, it's going to be anything but industrial. And there's another project that we have that is, it's on almost year seven. I mean, we took it over at the end of five when the first guy gave up, and we've been at it for two years, and we think it'll take another year. So there's extreme cases everywhere. Um, Phoenix, you can, it's easier to permit for sure, uh, no ma almost no matter what municipality you're in, and it's relatively simple to zone it to. At Jeff's point, I think that the, the, the building permits seem to be lagging uh, much more so than the entitlement process from, from what I'm seeing on my end. Um, I think you can move zoning through, you know, fairly quickly unless you're, you know, it's non-conforming or, or, you know, something along those lines. Um, but, you know, I know Public Works is, is, is pretty backed up and, and the building permits is, is where we really see a drag. Yeah. And Sean, I think it, it's certainly gotten a lot worse than you know, those of us that have been developing here for a long time. And it's really just a matter of perspective. It, it is better than some other markets and some of our competing markets. And you know, certainly you know, much more of a struggle against other markets that we compete against. Um, but I think for those of us that have been do doing business here for a long time, what we struggle with is just that it gets progressively worse. And there doesn't seem to be a fix out there on the horizon. That was my next question, is, is there a solution? I mean, it was, did COVID have the impact where you had from these municipalities uh, obviously shut down and maybe employees didn't come back, which created a shortage, which kind of created this backlog? I mean, is there any solution in our mind to kind of speed the process, or is this just the new norm? I don't know that there's a solution. I think the solutions that we would come up with, quite frankly, don't work for, for the governmental agencies. You know, we would say just hire a bunch of people. Yeah. You know, we would say out, outsource, you know, <laughs> and we'd say we'd pay for it. You know, set up an enterprise fund or whatever. But I, I think the limitation there is, you know, whether it's just the uh, you know the government officials themselves. In certain cases, there's you know union concerns at, at the government, and unfortunately, I think that all of those solutions that we would propose probably you know, might not work in, in yeah. their world. Utilities are tough too. Yeah, 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 and, and they're not getting any easier either. Tougher than it needs to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, we've, we've, we've definitely seen some delays on, on certainly the building energization, which have impacted delivery and COC, which have impacted tenants that thought they could get into a space and three months later still don't. So um, sometimes, believe it or not, the automation has even slowed things down. You know, you're doing something online and multiple agencies need, need to take a look at things and somebody can't check their box until the prior box is checked. Yep. And, you know, if they can't do it, then chances are they're not even looking at it. And, you know, whereas it used to be that everybody would look at things at the same time and you'd get your answers relatively quickly. And, you know, what was well intended to have everything submitted electronically, you know, as of yet, maybe they're still working out some of the kinks, but it really hasn't expedited the process. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's a learning curve. So um, the, the other issue, and I think it's an important issue that we've kind of talked about briefly here, is, is really the financing side of it. Um, obviously, the debt capital markets, uh, we talked about that disconnect from fundamentals, and that has caused certainly delays in a lot of this project, uh, specifically on the industrial side, which is what I specialize in. Um, it's, 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 it's benefited the market in a certain, certain um, sense that you aren't having an influx of product delivering what was supposed to deliver end of this year. So Jeff alluded to this, that it's kind of spread out the delivery, which has kept our market tight, which is obviously good from a rent appreciation perspective. Um, but the question here is, and I think each of you, every developer is different in how they finance it, uh, finance their projects. There's you know, different funds, uh, private equity, debt. And so I, I would like to get your guys' take specifically on, on your company, how you typically finance your projects, and then what that looks like today. Is it, is it difficult to find financing? Um, is the underwriting has just uh, has moved so much that some of these developments don't pencil? Just want to get your guys' insight on that specifically. Yeah, I'll just quickly tell you how you know, Majestic is set up. Um, and frankly, you know, our philosophy hasn't changed through the, the decades. And you know, we'll just still finance our construction loans through a predominantly regional bank, sometimes many money center on occasion, a local bank. But you know, so at that, what you know, certainly is impacting that is where the, the short-term interest rates are. And you know, LIBOR today is at you know, 430. And, you know, spreads or whatever they are, you know, for the particular borrower, you know, 200 plus, 250, you know, it gets to be pretty pricey on, on the construction side. You know, we then self-fund our own equity requirements uh, through the, the owner of the company and the other development partners. And upon completion of construction, then we just go out to the market and typically it's uh, institutionally financed long-term debt through life companies. And, and you, have, you have a couple of projects, obviously, you're working on in the Southwest and, um, two phases, what's your guys' construction timeline on those? Are you moving forward with both, one? So, it's a, good, it's a timely question. <laughs> and we've gone back and forth as to, you know, are we gonna put two buildings up of roughly, you know, 380,000 square feet or four buildings of roughly 760 square feet, 1,000 square feet. And, you know, we actually have, you know, included a provision in the construction loan if we wanted to, to pull it back to just two buildings. Um, you know, just from a cautious perspective, and I think the longer you've been in this business, probably, you know, the more nervous you are, I won't necessarily say cautious, but you're just trying to, you know, provide as many alternatives for the potential what-ifs that are out there. Um, we're, again, I, I think to me it's testament to say that we've got a construction loan for, for all four buildings. And again, 750,000 square feet for us, it's, uh, it's a larger phase than we've done as a company since 2008. Um, but I think, again, going back to your, your earlier statement where what we've seen in the you know, organic growth within the existing portfolio and our belief that we've got a, a well-located project and from what we see in the, the marketplace, uh, 
continuing strength on the core industries of the you know the resort corridor, I think we're you know going to continue to see strong demand for the for the new product. But you know, from a wider range perspective, from a company uh, standpoint, we're slowing down. You know, we're not going after every piece of land that you know we were in, in the last two years, and being a little more judicious in, in which projects you know we're going to devote our capital to. Okay, Jeff. Um, we have like maybe five or six buckets of capital. It depends. Could be um, private, uh, high net worth. Could be some institutional capital. Um, could be um, combination. Could be family office, um, and some traditional bank lending. Um, occasionally, if the project's large enough, the partner will also provide a big piece of the debt. Just depending. I mean, you get to a hundred fifty million dollar project. It's it's a uh, um, that that's kind of required. Um, I think, and, and we co-invest in all in, in every single project we do. But I think 23 for us, we're not necessarily planning on breaking ground on anything. Um, we are entitling, we are buying land. Um, I think we have six or seven sites under contract that range from five acres to 250 acres in in different areas, all all priced what we feel are priced appropriate which means that we have to pass on 98% of the stuff that we see. Um, but I think starting in like August, maybe like October, November, we started to see some fully baked industrial projects um, coming to the market at, at favorable land basis. Um, but they just happen to be in areas where there's 25 million square feet in the pipeline right around it. So I think we're cautious. Um, I think if you went today to get, uh, if you're not majestic or a big institution, you go and tell somebody you want to build 700,000 square feet of spec industrial, I'd say the air's pretty thin. If, if there's one guy that'll do it, maybe, I don't know. Um, but I think that, sh you know, perhaps will start to loosen as, as people get more visibility into 23. And, and I, I, the real test, I think, is absorption. If it stays where it's at, the market is going to find a way to meet that need. We're not going to have this big, um, I don't think, huge timeout where you've got all this pent-up tenant demand and nowhere for guys to go. I mean, it may be slow and it may be choppy and uneven, but I, I think the need will be met. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know. Are there any lenders in the room here? No. <laughs> They don't, they, yeah, they don't, they don't, oh, they don't want to raise their hands. They're afraid, <laughs> they're, afraid, they're afraid of the next question. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Jonathan? Uh, we typically finance our deals with uh, a construction loan. I would say 12, 18 months ago, that construction loan was a, a leverage between 65 and 70%. Um, today, that's between 50 and 55%. So we have to fill that with additional equity. We typically bring in a institutional type partner um, and we do a co-invest uh, partnership structure with them. So, you know, the amount of equity that, that's going into this deal on an aggregate basis is, you know, we've got to put about 40% more equity into these deals as a result of, you know, 15 to 20% less debt in the deal. So that's, that's putting pressure on the IRR returns for our... our what we, like, what were construction loan... Um, 15, 12, 15 months ago versus what those rates are today? So uh, on a spread over LIBOR, um, you know, we were you know, 
two to, it range between two and 250, and now they're sort of 275 to 325 range. So, um, and, and plus LIBOR or SOFR now um, is up, and yeah. uh, I was looking at a deal just last night where our interest costs are up 3x in, in a deal now because um, uh, you know, just the interest rates are up so much and, and, and the spreads are up. Um, so that's a, so those, those are some headwinds that we're facing on, on financing uh, multifamily deals. Um, you know, we typically start across the country eight to nine deals a year, I think in 2023, in terms of sort of new financings, which I, will, sorry, I won't count the sort of the January deals that are left over. It's probably three or four, so um, a significant decline in, in our typical starts um, in 2023. Tim, um, for us, it, uh, we have a few different buckets: um, high net worth in individuals. Um, we've done quite a few deals with with uh, with private equity, where they have both equity and debt funds um, that we that we pull from. Um, we have done some institutional deals as well. For us, you know, the hurdle with with institutional capital was that, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, our deals are, are a little bit smaller. You know, thirty, forty thousand square footers, upwards of of two hundred thousand square feet. So, uh, over the years, we kind of learned to aggregate deals where we'd put two, three, four deals together, and that you know is a little bit more enticing um, for the institutional groups uh, to get behind us. Um, going forward, you know, this year, I don't see no institutional capital. Um, the deal that, that I'm doing now is, is uh, um, internal capital um, and, and the construction loan financed uh, um, by a debt fund. All right. So I, I think we went over 9 a.m. So we can open it up to audience questions if we have any. You have a couple of them. One of the first ones was, and you've touched it on different ways, but land scarcity. I know, Tim, you're doing something at Lamb and Cartier, and you even said that you were offered double for the land in a short period of time, and since you think development's so easy, you're going forward. I'm sure, Jonathan, you have some issues finding infill land at prices that are, you know, two, three million an acre, I think we see you paying. Um, can you guys address that specifically, even though you've touched on it? I mean, I think it, in this market, there's, there's definitely some scarcity of land. I think that's, that's what's driving everybody to, to Apex. Um, at this point, uh, there are some infill pieces there um, that are out there, um, and, and I, th I think you know the, the lands bill kind of hit hit a wall, um, you know, end, end of last year, which would have moved the disposal boundary out um, to sell off more, more property from the from the BLM. Um, there there still are, will be some some you know BLM deals, auction deals. Um, I, I think that that uh, that you could pick up if if that's your game. Um, but uh, I definitely think that um, you know there's some some scarcity here. Um, I, I think Apex is you know I'm a believer in Apex, and, and I, I think that'll be that'll be great for uh, for the industrial market going forward. And I'll I'll just comment since the question was about infill land. Uh, you know the the challenges that we face as soon as you know the first deal I did with on an infill piece here in Las Vegas was one million an acre, and then I went to two million, and then the next guys you're talking to about doing that third and fourth deal, all of a sudden they want four and five million. Um, and it's, it's tough to make that jump, um, you know, for, so I think the price for infill multifamily deal is still around two to two and a half million. Um, it, it, you know, like I said, it, you know, land is one of those components that's out there that makes, you know, the deal work and uh, we, are, we are feeling some pressure and so we have to be mindful of what we can pay. And just while you're there, is the rent pressure the same now? I mean, is it, you have rent pressure now. 
Yeah, we do. You know, we, we, we were coming off, you know, 20% rent growth and 3 4% vacancy. Uh, vacancy has ticked up, you know, into the, you know, 7 8%. And, you know, if you look over a period of time, I would say over the, maybe the last eight, nine months, you know, it's probably flat. Um, and so, um, you know, where we were able to pick up the additional cost for construction and the increased land prices with rising rents, we can't do that anymore. Yeah, I, th I think land um, prices have, I think, come off their peak for sure. Um, I don't recall, Sean, you probably know, is, it, is what's the record for industrial, 30, 35 ish? 30, $35. $35 a foot for industrial, which um, means, you know, almost every product type pays the same exact price now, like, right? 35 used to be retail pricing. Um, I, it's definitely off its peak. And I think it's definitely, um, at least from what we're seeing, it's, it's more of a um, moderated. They're still elevated a great deal above where they were, but certain pieces here and there can be maybe bought for less. But locally, there's always been a land shortage. I'll, I'll say What's it. your contrast between Phoenix and here for industrial, Jeff? Um, I would say apples to apples, uh, uh, maybe a $25 site here is a $12 site there, something to that effect. I mean, I got beat out on a deal like when the market was at its zenith. I think we offered $20 a foot on an infill Tempe site and it sold for $32. Um, there's nothing been ever even close to that since. but. Typically, it's less. I mean, coverage is less, too. There's a lot of other factors that, that go in. But, but um, land is actually for sale in Phoenix when, when someone offers it to you. It's not for sale here. It's a suggestion. <laughs> it's true. It's, yeah, and on that, um, so my team, we, we handle, do a lot of land acquisition uh, for development. And one of the things we thought about is that going into 2023, where, where the land plays. And so we sat down. We went through every single market, and we put together a list of 25 suggestions. These aren't on the market. They're 25 suggestions of, hey, maybe we need to be reaching out, seeing if there's an opportunity here. 60% of that sub five acres. So when we talk about land availability infill of anything of size, it, it just doesn't exist. Um, so it is relatively difficult to assemble sites. Eventually, you know, you look at the Nellis area, eventually that could get cleared out with some of the scrap yards and you could do some assemblage there. It's, it's just not there today, because um, these groups have nowhere to go. Um, so every year, there's, there's sites that, you know, a seller that wouldn't sell comes to market, it sells. So there will be opportunity, uh, but there's no question, you know, Apex is obviously that future of development, um, but it's important to note that's big box development. Um, so those are, those are 500,000 minimum. So you're gonna see a tightness within the mid-bay light industrial in, the, in, the, in kind of the, the valley of the town. Um, exactly what Majestic's doing in the Southwest, I think, is, is ideal for what the market needs right now. But to get down to the old mid-bay, like we used to build and EJM used to build, which was, uh, the building was 120 deep or 150 deep, and it goes to five or 6,000 feet. The pricing to do that has gotta be, I'm gonna guess, two, in this market, $250 a foot, when you count the TI, give or take. I mean, it's substantial. Um, you know, we obviously, it wasn't that long ago that stuff was being built for 70 bucks a foot. Like, it just wasn't that long ago. But I think the shell's one thing, and 
if you can sell shell buildings, that's the greatest business in the world because the TI is the thing that hurts every yield, period. And to demise them down, you, you, you can't shorten the building enough. You can't make it small enough. You can't do a, a minimum amount of office enough to hardly move the needle on the cost on that product. Yeah, yeah and I think a lot of developers that have buildings that could be demised down to 40s and 60s, um, and there's activity in that, they just have not made that decision. They said that you know, full building users um, has been active. We're going to wait for a single tenant user because of that TI cost. You know, if you don't have to cut it up and you're getting premium rents for a full building user, um, th there's no there's no need in committing to a smaller size at that point. Can I just say one other thing? Addressing the question about infill, and, and you brought it up and just kind of in passing, but I think it's important to understand a site of five acres really doesn't work for bulk distribution. I mean, if you're going to have loading you know, a dock high building, five acres doesn't work. So, you know, you look at all these infill sites and five acres to a lot of us seems like, you know, that's a lot of land that, you know, you can do something on, but it doesn't work for the, the industrial type buildings that, you know, uh, that we're looking to do and most in the audience might, you know, be contemplating doing it. And so you then get into, you know, where are these opportunities for 20 plus acres and they're few and far between in our marketplace. Yeah. I was handed a piece of paper that says water in all caps with exclamation points, so anyone. So far, if you can afford it, you can get it. I mean, it's, it's definitely the biggest problem I think we've had since, since I've been in town. Um, I'm, I, I know there's multiple big, big, big ideas about how to solve it, but I haven't heard anything concrete. Yeah, I think, you know, all of us in the development world are very mindful of that when it comes to, you know, prospective companies that are looking to locate here in Las Vegas. Um, and frankly, from our company standpoint, you know, we've, you know, shied away from those consumptive use of, you know, of water, just recognizing, again, the importance to, to our valley here. Uh, on industrial, we don't use a lot of water as, you know, rock is just fine landscaping as well as, uh, you know, the desert, desert landscape. So. You know, their, uh, the needs of the community kind of, you know, suit us just fine from a cost perspective. But, you know, we certainly are going to be, you know, all of us that are continuing to develop encountering, you know, a big change when it comes to industrial with the elimination of evaporative coolers that so many of the companies that have been doing business here for, for decades have grown accustomed to. And that's going to be a very interesting time as to, you know, what the various developers could come up with to amply, you know, cool their buildings and who that cost is going to be, you know, who's going to bear the cost of, you know, the mechanical cooling that is out there on the horizon, not that far down the road. Sean, and then we'll wrap it up. What do you hear from all the national people that are coming in town? And lastly, I want to thank, I think we have 35, 36 tables. Please come back next month. It's been a great program. Sean, take us out. Uh, and, and sorry, what was the question what do you, again? What do you hear from national people on water in coming to Vegas? Coming into Vegas? Yes. Um, yeah, so it's always a question that's brought up. And I think one important thing to discuss is you know, Nevada, Southern Nevada has been at the forefront of water conservation. Um, when you th think about what the uh, Southern Nevada has done in terms of everything that's used internally is recycled and put back into Lake Mead on credits. Uh, and I believe we're a global leader within that. So we've, what everything that we're doing from a water conservation perspective is in order for us to continue to grow. 
And I think the conversations that are being had, the hard conversations that are being had, are extremely important to be done. And we're doing the right things, stepping into the right direction. And I think it's also important to know that it's, it's a regional issue. Um, this isn't just a Las Vegas issue. Uh, we talk about the HVAC uh, moratorium. I, I imagine that Phoenix is going to be right behind us. Um, and they're not, they're, you know, they're not as advanced as we are in our water conservation. Um, so it's something that's discussed from a development standpoint and, and, and something we have to, to, to continue to, to, to moderate and, and, and speak to. But uh, I think all the right conversations are being had and, and they're being had in order to continue the growth. Great point. All right. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll cut it off there. Uh, Martin Harris Construction, we are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Sean, you are, prime, you are Exhibit A of someone who's come up through the ranks of NAOP. Congratulations. And this panel, the amount of knowledge at this panel is incredible. You can only find it here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.